often a time of uh, taking inventory, time of reflection on their walk with God. And I trust that that is the same for you. And where we recognize that, you know, emotionally made uh, resolutions don't necessarily carry us through the year, but a focus on our God does, does it not? As we, if anything, resolve to focus on him more. And so we look forward to another year together, uh, getting to know him better, serving him together, growing together, and enjoying the love of Christ together. And I trust as we approach the word this morning that the uh, words we just sang, what, a, what an appropriate song for uh, uh, before we open the word of God together. And look at the ancient words as we come uh, open and broken before him. Uh, you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 for our scripture reading. But we'll have, we do have a few announcements as you turn there. One is I'd like, like you to pray for our Sunday school. We are uh, down to one class. We're trying to rest some of our teachers, so to speak, give them a break. And so we're at, we're at one class, and we're praying that, we'll, we'll, uh, praying that the Lord would direct in how we would uh, manage our Sunday school. So I trust you'll direct in that regard. We have some of the... Uh, fourth through sixth graders joining us today, so um, glad to have them with us, and I trust they'll benefit from studying God's word uh, here with us in the adult service. Now, also, um, on Wednesday evening, we began the, birth, the book of First Peter, a book that talks much about suffering, various forms of suffering, so suffering of trials, the uh, undeserved suffering, suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for per and persecution, and so on. And therefore, a very relevant book for all ages, including us today. So I'd encourage you to consider taking part. And that's just a wonderful, wonderful study as God gives us direction on how to navigate and, in fact, how to have joy in spite of the circumstances around us. So we look forward to that study as well. And one other thing, you might have noticed in your bulletins here that there is a uh, MHBC family Bible reading schedule. And it's been a press upon my heart the last few weeks to... Um, encourage all of us to read God's word. You know, the fact is many Christians rarely read through the Bible in its entirety, much less once a year, once every couple years. And, you know, though we may have our devotions and have our favorite passages, and I really like to settle in the Psalms oftentimes in my devotional time, um, it's good to get in the habit of reading the word of God. So what, are you, what you're going to see every month is a, uh, a schedule for the month. We're going to read through the new, hopefully read through the New Testament as a family. Uh, this is designed to have about five or six chapters a week um, in the book of the month or the part, the books of the month. And so they're not really that difficult to read a chapter a day. This is something that would probably take a person five to ten minutes a day. And then I threw in as well the Psalms. I call it for weekends, but of course scheduled as you like. But for the other two days a week or whenever you like to fit it in, we'll read through the Psalms. And the objective is for this for 2023 is as a church family to read through the New Testament and the Psalms together and next year we'll, we'll turn to the Old Testament and then maybe in two years we can read through the entire word of God and, and when you do that it helps you make connections, it helps you to see the big picture and see what God is up to and how things fit together, it's important to do that and so you may have your own Bible reading schedule if you want to participate with us at the same time, if you want to throw the Old Testament in so you can get, get it in entire year, that's uh, good for you. But uh, this is something I'd like to encourage you to follow, to read, and there's going to be more to this. We may uh, meet occasionally, maybe monthly, to um, uh, kind of sum summarize, survey, 
uh, the books we have read as well. So there's going to be more to added to this as the weeks go on. So that's what that's about, and I trust you'll have an enjoyable time getting in God's Word. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 4, for our scripture reading, let's start with verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, ye may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the end of the, those who do not obey the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pray. Father, truly you are a faithful creator. You are God who is faithful to us, Father, and we recognize that much of life we have struggles every day, sufferings every day. We have, we have situations that are often unwelcome and challenging in our lives, Father, but may we recognize each of these uh, from your hand. Father, may we recognize you are a faithful creator and we can commit ourselves to you. Father, for you are a God of love. And as we look ahead to another year, Father, pray that we would number our days. Pray that we would recognize your sovereign hand at work in our lives because you are a God of love. You've proven that love in sending the Lord Jesus whom we just celebrated. Father, you've proven your love was when Jesus went to the cross and you laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Father, thank you for your love and care for us. And may we be those that would commit our lives to you and trust you in the challenges of life. And even today, as we open your word together, we might recognize your word as authoritative. May we see them as ancient words long preserved. May we see them as the very words of God, the words of life. And even when you ask the disciples if they would turn away from you, they said, where, would you, where, where should they go? You have the words of life. And may we come before you this morning in respect to your holy word that we might allow it to speak to our hearts, that we might accept it by faith and make it the very foundation of our lives and it might direct all aspects of our thinking, that you might in turn be glorified and that we might find the blessing you intended for us. And so be our instructor and guide to this morning, we pray. And Father, for those who may not be with us this morning, Father, wherever they are, we pray that you'd watch over them, especially this morning as well. And help us all, Father, to be a, a light for you in this dark world. So be our teacher now, we pray this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Turning to Philippians chapter 3, as we continue where we left off a couple weeks ago. Philippians has been a book, an epistle, that has brought our focus to the, to the goal, God's goal or objective, to further the gospel, to reach the lost, to heal the brokenhearted. And we see in this book really a, a testimony of Paul's and his team's um, ministry and desire to be engaged in, in seeing Jesus Christ known. As we came to chapter 3, Paul gave his testimony in that, to his salvation. And he, and he summarizes that in verse 9 when, he, when Paul says that he, he stands in him. He wants to be found in him, in the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness which is given, and we're thankful for that this morning, are we not? Because we stand as Christians before God. If you're a believer this morning, we do not stand in our own righteousness, which Paul says is of the law or of good works or of ourselves. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. And that is where we find our acceptance. And when we stand before God someday, we're going to be rejoicing all the more in the gift he has given of his son, a gift which involved him bearing our sins, a gift which involved him winning the victory and, and promising us the forgiveness of sins, the gift which involves the giving of a righteousness that fits us for the presence of God, the very righteousness of Christ, is which will stand in a ro- and rejoice. And we're never going to stand in our own righteousness, our own good deeds, our own faithfulness. We're going to stand and claim the, the cross of Christ and the righteousness which comes through him. As we get to verse 10, which we began last time, we find that Paul turns from the positional standing in Christ, being found in his righteousness, to the practical outworking of that, this expression. It's almost like an overflow. It's like like he's bursting from the seams. He says that I want to know him. And what he's saying is I want to know this person better, the one who saved me, a religious zealot who who was on the wrong path. God extended to me grace and mercy and kindness in providing for me a righteousness which even Paul couldn't produce. He was top drawer. And he said even his righteousness, his faithfulness, his good deeds, his religious heritage wasn't enough. He counted it up a dung that he might win Christ to be found in him. And Paul says that kind of unconditional love, that kind of grace and forgiveness, he says, I want to know more. It was an attraction, the love of the Lord Jesus that attracted Paul as he, as he exclaims in verse 10 that I might know him. And he recognized that the, that the gospel is not merely a theology or a dogma. It's about a person, isn't it? It's about the person who humbled himself and came to be that babe in the manger and then bear our sins on the cross. And Paul says, I want to know that love. And along with it, he, says, he, he adds to this a couple dynamics. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Two intimacies, two dynamics that go with knowing Christ because these are... This is what, these are what he experienced. This is what Christ experienced. And Paul, last time we talked about the power of his resurrection. As believers, it's something we can know. We can know resurrection power in our lives. And that's just like unthinkable how, how in the world we can know that power. But God does supply. That's his promise. And we looked at it in three different categories, at least three different ways. God gives us the ability to live holy lives. That's, where, that's by the grace of God, I am what I am. God gives us strength to stand faithful for him, and God gives us power in ministry, ASP, we called it last time. But here, next Paul exclaims that along with the, that intimacy of knowing Christ and, the, and his power that he makes available for, for Christian lives, he says, I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And this is a unusual request, isn't it? You don't find that at too many prayer gatherings, that I want to know the sufferings of Christ. We, that's just not normal for us, do we? For Paul, it became his passion to, to know Christ better. And the word fellowship, we know, means to share in common. It's a commonly used word in the New Testament. It means to participate in, to share in. And, and you ask, why in the world, Paul, do you want to share in the sufferings of Christ? Well, first of all, it's probably because Paul saw in Christ the, an amazing and an ab- uh, unbelievable quality of love. It's like John three sixteen. God so loved the world. How big is so? We've, said, we've mentioned before. 
God so loved the world. And in, in, the, in, in the sufferings of Christ, Paul saw an amazing quality of unconditional love in which God was seeking to rescue his enemies, rebels, rejectors, and even haters of God, Jesus Christ went to the cross for. And maybe in all that suffering and the expression of that love, Paul saw a tremendous purpose that defined the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. A purpose that had real, real lasting value. You know, all of us have reasons to get up every day. A lot of them we don't like, some we like. And yet underneath all the reasons you and I go through our daily routine, we find a purpose that God has for us, a purpose that is seen in Jesus Christ, a purpose of eternal value. And we know what, the, what Jesus is about. He's about restoring last mankind to their creator. He's about delivering souls from eternal hell. He's, to, he's about healing all that is broken in life. And he's all about revealing this amazing, wonderful creator to humanity, which is running 100 miles an hour the other way away from him. That's what the sufferings of Christ were about. It was to fill those purposes, to bring us into that right relationship with Christ. And it was a purpose worth living for and worth dying for. Because Jesus did. That's why he came as a man. That's why he died. And Paul says it's that suffering, that, 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 the purpose of that suffering that I want to know. You see, in the context of service, in Jesus' instructions to us, he says in John 13, that passage on foot washing, where Jesus is teaching his disciples to minister to one another. He says this in John 13, 16, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. And he says, if I'm doing this, your Lord and Master, then you ought to wash one another's feet as well. He says, you need to serve. He says, that that's the example he set. In the context of suffering, Jesus said this in John 15, a couple of chapters later, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so those two aspects of suffering, of service, and persecution, Jesus said is normal. It's normal for the Christian who is following Christ, living Christ, sharing in his life. And the question is, in both these passages, he mentions servants and master. Is The question for us is, are we living as servants of Christ? Are we seeking to know him, or do we, are we just playing church and doing our duty and, and you know, enjoying the, the camaraderie of, of others? Or is this passion, in Philippians 3.10, mentioned here, to know him? what unites us, what brings us out in frigid weather to slip through roads, to come together, to together as a family celebrate our Savior and want to know him, the very person who loved us with that unconditional love, who is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful, who has wonderful eternal plans awaiting us. Well, he says here, I want to know the fellowship. He wants to share in, in verse 10, his sufferings. Interesting, it's plural, isn't it? He's sufferings. And that's common in the scriptures. We saw that in 1 Peter 4, verse 13. When we read through that, he said this, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And he also, we find in Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verse 8, and other places, the sufferings of Christ is often referred to in the plural. When we think of the suffering of Christ, we often think of it as a singular event, the cross of Christ. And yet the Bible often uses the plural in refer referring to the sufferings of Christ. And if you and I are going to understand what Paul is saying here, 
that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might, that I might share in the sufferings of Christ. And we really know what the Bible says about those sufferings, don't we? Well, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to take a moment to look at some of the aspects. And this may not be exhaustive, but we know the, the, the centerpiece of the humbling of Christ is the fact that he came to be a man, first of all. We saw that in Philippians 2. We studied that already. He humbled himself and he took on human flesh. He became a man. In Hebrews 2, verse 14 says that, inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so he humbled himself. He took on human flesh. That alone was an aspect of his suffering. The God of the universe, the eternal Son of God, stepped into the human body and became a human in order to minister to us. And that, and that was, in essence, a suffering. He gave up, for at least for a time, his glory, and he became permanently a, a, a man in order to minister to men. Another aspect mentioned here as it goes on, we're told, in verse 18, let's start, in verse 60, let's pick it up there. For indeed, he not, does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid, help, to the seed of Abraham, to people, to you and I, to his children. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being temp tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Now, yes, it's referring to the cross of Christ, which we're going to get to in a moment. But another aspect of that is that as our high priest, he's able to help. He's able to aid. He's able to help you and I because he gets us. He understands us. He lived as a human being. And that's what it says in verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted or tested. It's a different aspect than, than, the, than the work of the cross. This is referring to the life of Christ. He experienced the limitations and afflictions of human flesh. I think Warren Risby put this well in his commentary where he says this about this passage. He said, while he was here on earth, Jesus was made like unto his brethren and that he experienced the sinless limit infirmities of human nature. He knew what it was to be a helpless baby, a growing child, a maturing adolescent. He knew the experiences of weariness, hunger, and thirst, and so on. Jesus experienced the limitations of the human body, an aspect of his suffering. He was the eternal God, yet he willingly became a human to suffer the, the limitations of a body here on earth. The third thing we re recognized an aspect of Jesus' sufferings was his rejection. Turn to the book of John, if you would, please. John chapter 1. Here in John chapter 1, John introduces to us the word that, that, that predated creation because he was the creator. It says in verse 10 of him and in his incarnation, his entry into this world, he says, he, verse 10 says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Rejection. He was rejected throughout his lifetime. And even though at times there followed masses of people, that when, but, they, but Jesus made it apparent 
that they often followed because of the handouts they were getting, because of the benefits they were receiving, and many departed from him. He was rejected of men. Ever have your love violated, rejected? Imagine the heart of the Creator. Standing here, humbling himself to become a man, experience the limitation of growing up to become an adult in all the afflictions of the human flesh, and to have people reject their Creator, the people he loved, the people he intended to, he created with the intention of living with for all eternity. Rejection. Definitely an aspect of the sufferings of Christ. Of course, then, as we approach his trial and execution, we recognize he was also physically abused. Turn to the book of Mark, if you would, please. Mark chapter 14, and we recognize that in that rejection that eventually led to his arrest and trial, we find Jesus being physically abused by those he created. Verse 60 says this, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming in the, with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. Unimaginable. Unimaginable. The very creator standing amongst men, accused, condemned, spit on, beaten on the cross he was he was cursed and insulted Pilate in Mark 15 15 down in the next chapter scourges him I wonder sometimes you know we study the passage in Philippians 2 that someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord we see in Revelation 20 the great white throne judgment when the unsaved dead stand before God and what are they going to think when they face their creator whom they spat upon. Sufferings of Christ. Why did he endure it? None of us would have done that. If we had the resources he had, the legions of angels he could have called, that's not normal. That's not natural. For us, vengeance is natural. Why did he endure it? Because of the, because of the great love. Underlying these sufferings is the love of Christ. God's unbelievable and amazing love for his created these very people who abused him are the ones he died for? The one whose sins was laid on him? At that same time, Jesus was also abandoned. If you're in Mark 14, look back at verse 50, where it says they all forsook him and fled at his arrest. They all forsook him. When he hung on the cross, he hung basically alone, except maybe for his mother and a couple. In fact, Peter denied him. None of us like to be alone. We're created by God to be in community. Someday we'll be in an eternal community with all the saints forever and ever and ever with the one who purchased our redemption. 
And that's why there's a local church, because saints are drawn together by the love of Christ. We're meant to live in community. But a spiritual community, primarily, first of all. And Jesus' dearest friends abandon him. If you're in Mark, still in Mark, look at chapter 15, verse 33. We find he's also then on the cross, forsaken by his Father and the Spirit. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken even by his Father. And that's alone. That's alone. You know, we believe that in that time upon the cross when God the Father and God the Spirit forsook the Lord Jesus Christ, it was that time in which he experienced our spiritual death on the cross, which is separation from God for all eternity. And he was forsaken by his Father in his love for us. But that's not all. Turn over to the book of Isaiah as we get to the, the cross itself, Isaiah 53. This, one, this, this tremendous chapter, a prophetic chapter, which describes the death of Christ, verse 4, tells us that not only was he forsaken by his friends, or abandoned by his friends, or forsaken by his father, but he was bruised by his father. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, but smitten by God. It wasn't us that laid our sins upon Jesus. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted by God. In verse 5, he was wounded by God for our transgressions. He was bruised by God for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. And, he, his, and by his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No doubt this is the greatest aspect of the sufferings of Christ. But it is not the singular aspect as we have seen. But he was bruised by his father. He was afflicted in verse 7. In verse 10, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And that doesn't mean that the God got his jollies out of abusing the Lord Jesus Christ. That meant it was his will was being accomplished. What tremendous love. His only son, his undeserving son, he put him to grief, verse 10. He made his soul an offering for sin. That is the pinnacle of the suffering of Christ, is it not? And what tremendous love it took for the Lord Jesus to come for us. And, and when you consider these things that the Bible teaches us, we find that the depths of the love of God becomes clear and yet unreachable almost, without understanding from the human perspective. But it also makes clear to us the divine objective. That God, in his great love, had a purpose. And that was to rescue you and I. That which was lost at the fall because of sin, that which has affected and infected humanity and causing all this brokenness, death, and suffering, and misery around us, God wanted to set straight. Wanted to rescue. Wants to develop. And the cross was the beginning. The, the incarnation of Christ was the beginning of that rescue plan. And so Paul says, back in Philippians 3.10, he says, I, I want to participate in those sufferings. That's kind of like a, wow. 
That's really wow. Now, none of us are going to, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're going to experience the suffering of the cross. No one ever going to suffer that. There's no one else in, in, in the past or the future that God will lay on, the sin, lay on their back the sins of the world. But Paul says, I can suffer similarly. I can suffer for the, I can suffer motivated by the same love and for the same purpose. You know, there's probably two primary areas, primary areas for you and I that bring suffering in our Christian experience. And it's not that we long for it, really, is it? Paul just said that on the heels of knowing Christ. He recognized it was a result of drawing near to Christ. He recognized it was, it was the byproduct of sharing in the life of Christ, was to share in his power, which we all want, and to share, share in his sufferings, which really none of us want. But in reality, Paul says here it's something to be desired because it brings great reward. We look at what was accomplished on the cross because Hebrews tells us about the Lord Jesus. It says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And that joy is you and I. Now, your name might, your name might not be joy, but in God's view it is. It's for you and I that was set before him. The joy of helping and rescuing and delivering us, he endured the cross. And for you and I, suffering like Christ is, first of all, we suffer when we live for him. It's a result of personal holiness, being holy as he is holy. When people see Jesus through us, they're going to reject us like they rejected him. They're going to persecute him, us like they persecuted him. And, that, and, that what's, and, and it's those, that life of Christ which will bring ridicule. It'll bring persecution. It'll bring scrutiny. It'll be criticism. It'll be reject, rejection. Turn with me, if you will, over to 1 Peter chapter 3. You see, God did not call us to conform to this world. He said just the opposite. Be not conformed to this world. We, God did not call us to be acceptable to this world. He called us to be acceptable to him, to live life for him. And when you do that, you're going to swim upstream. We march to a different drumbeat, and the world's not going to understand. Therefore, they're going to scrutinize and criticize. And that mentality is increasing in the day and age in which we live. Where if you don't agree with the status quo, you're the enemy in any area of life, and especially the Christians who stand faithful for the truth of God's word. And we read about that in Peter this morning somewhat. First Peter 3, first of all, verse 13 says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. <coughs> Excuse me. Why? And don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. That's why. Because when you stand for righteousness, there's one result. It's those that are convicted will ultimately, sometime along their path, be shamed for criticizing one who, is a, who lives for the truth, who's a follower of Christ. In fact, God tells us here when that happens, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, because we're living righteously, we're living according to God's word, we're following him, no excuses. You know, one of the, you know, the favorite phrases today is like, not sorry. I'm living for Christ, not sorry. Even if it does ruffle people's feathers. We're not called to, to, to smooth the feathers. We're called to follow Christ. And that will ruffle feathers. That's just how it is. And he says, when you do, go on the offense. Don't have to defend yourself. Instead, give people the reason. Verse 15, be ready 
to tell people about the wonderful love of the Savior and the truth he has for us to live by, a truth that brings stability to life, brings deliverance to life, brings help to life, keeps us from making a mess of our lives like the world around us. We, we, we explain to them the person of Christ. Then, of course, over in chapter 4, which we read in our scripture reading this morning, it says when we, we experience the fiery trial, he says rejoice in verse 13 because you're partaking in Christ's sufferings. This is about persecution, for being a witness, for preaching the truth. He says you partake of Christ's sufferings, verse 13, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. That's a blessing. Yeah, I know Christians, you know, they finally get around to thinking, well, maybe I need to witness to my neighbor, my relative, my best friend, and, you know, and the person somehow laughs at them, ridicules them, and they say, forget it. I just, I, I'm, it's not worth it. Well, I'm sure glad Jesus didn't say that, aren't you? He says, be happy, because they're getting it. That's really what I think that means. If someone actually sees Christ in you, hears Christ from you, so they understand a little of the truth of God and his word, be glad. They're getting the message. And I hope they'll respond appropriately, rightly, but sometimes they don't. Verse 14, if you reproach in the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. And so on. So the first area of sharing in his suffering is being willing to stand faithful to him. Someone says, you mean you go to church two days a week? We used to have a, you know, I'm thinking three days a week because we used to have a Sunday night service. Three days a week? Are you crazy? There's so much other things, other things to spend your time in. You mean you don't go here, don't do that? It's the spirit of glory and of God that rests on you when people see that. So, sharing in his suffering has been willing to stand for him in a hostile world. The other area obvious then that we can duplicate in our lives, that we can share in, is the idea of sacrificial service in our lives. The Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, the Bible says this in Matthew 20, 28, or Jesus says, it just says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His heart, his, his mentality of the person who lives in us, who abides in us and we're to abide in him is service. It's sacrificial service. It costs something, doesn't it? And the, first of all, that, that service is towards God. First of all, isn't it? Towards God. And of all surrender. I love the passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord, which is important in our lives. It gives us a pattern. We need to see the Lord Jesus Christ, that I might know him. We have to know him. And then God has a mission, and he says this in verse 8. I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom will I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. You know, common missionary theme, isn't it, that verse? Here am I, send me. But that doesn't just apply to missionaries who go across the world, the bonga bonga. That applies to people who go across the street, down the road, over to the cafeteria. Here am I. It's a surrender to God, first of all. That's what service is. It's a recognition that, uh, first of all, that I'm not my own. That's what surrender is. It's really aligning ourselves with what we re who we really are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 say this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. I need to read that when I get up every morning. That's a verse I should put on my bulletin board and read that every morning. Put it on my ceiling when I wake up in the morning. You are not your own. Are a good reminder. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. In reality, surrender to God is the recognition of to whom we belong. And saying, Lord, what would you have me to do today? You know, I've got to get this done and that done and the other thing done. I've got all these things to get done. And, you know, and, and some, sometimes God intervenes in a day and says, oh, no, we all have that happen. A stick gets stuck in our spokes and our day doesn't go the way we planned. And God sometimes just reminds us that, you know what? Those, all those things didn't have to be attended to if I have something different for you to do. And I'd say, no, God, I've got to get my hubs cap polished today. It just has to be done. Or people around us are hurting and needy. Romans 14, 7 and 8 put it this way. He says, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. There's another one of those good phrases. We are the Lord's. That's, he's our creator. He's our redeemer. And so surrender, first of all, towards God. And that requires, I thought I'd throw in one other principle. Because in order to do that, we have to commit the details of our life that get us all worked up to a tizzy to God. And that reminds you of Matthew 6, 33, doesn't it? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God says, I got your life. If I call you to go over, go over somewhere that's inconvenient or even unsafe, or maybe not at a convenient time, maybe it costs you some sleep, or your kid a nap, or a few bucks out of your wallet, God says, I could take care of you if, that's, if I'm calling you to this. Are you willing? That's what God wants. That's what Isaiah was. Here am I, send me. He stepped right up. Isn't that just delightful? When, when a believer steps up, steps up say, here am I. I'm willing. So towards God, it's first of all surrender. That's what service looks like. Secondly, towards man, it's simply loving, compassionate service. I couldn't help but think of Jude, verse 20 through 23. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, that's kind of what Paul is saying, that I may know him. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So Jude here couples the mentality or the, the desire of, a, of the heart to know Christ to keep themselves in the love of God, to keep enjoying the love of God and his care for us and a walk with him and a relationship with him in our daily lives with the expression of compassion. Because that's the root of service, isn't it? The heart of God. Make a difference. Make a distinction. Step up in modern vernacular. And others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire and so on. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I couldn't help but avoid this portion of scripture. These chapters are chapters on service. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 15. Here it says this in regards to ministry towards one another. It says, For all things are for your sakes. And that's a great way to start this passage, isn't it? All things are for your sakes. What a great mentality. That's the heart of Christ. 
That's what brought him to his suffering, to, be, to step into humanity, to experience the limitations of human flesh, to be rejected, abandoned, ridiculed, beaten, and eventually a sacrifice for sins. Because he, he looked down at you and I and says, this is for you. This is all for you. And Paul duplicates that attitude here in 2 Corinthians 4. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, that's the summary of this love of Christ, that grace having spread to the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. He says, therefore, we're going to keep on going. We're not going to lose heart. We're not going to faint, I think one version says. Even though our outward man is perishing, things are just not, I'm not keeping my life together. Outward man's perishing at the inward man. That's the importance, is renewed day by day. For our light affliction. Now, very few of us call our sufferings light afflictions. But that is an eternal perspective, isn't it? Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, most of us don't see in there but for a moment. I know for me, I can't wait for that moment to be over when they happen. But again, that's an eternal perspective. Is working for us a more far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen... As we focus on the things that are seen, then, then those moments get longer and longer and longer. And the, and the afflictions get heavier and heavier and heavier. But we don't look at the things that are seen. We look to God. We look at the things, things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. This is how we participate in the sufferings of Christ when it comes to service. On one hand, we suffer with him when we live for him. On the other hand, we suffer for him when we serve with him in our lives. You see, the heart of Christ is for the lost, the broken, and the brokenhearted. In his incarnation, he initiated the purpose of redemption and restoration and rescue. In his church, he still lives to carry on that purpose, the mission of his heart. To help, as Hebrews 2.18 said, to aid those that are tested and those that are broken, those that are afflicted. And so Paul here saw these kind of sufferings something to be pursued or counted as a privilege to be part of. Well, often as children, we run the other direction. It is something that should be the norm of knowing Christ. And you might say, if, if you're counting the cost, stop counting. Trust God with the details of your life. Because Jesus didn't count the cost. He said, this is for you. For the joy that was set before him. Now, going back to Philippians 3.10, we find that the fellowship of his sufferings is, is connected to being conformed to his death, isn't it? It's willingness to die to self. Go back to, I should have told you to stay in 2 Corinthians 4, go back there. This is illustrated here. This precedes the verses we just read, this idea of dying to self, our identification with Christ. Verse 7 says we have this treasure in earthen vessels in 2 Corinthians 4. It's a treasure to have the gospel message and the person of the gospel within us, it's a treasure. It's in earthen vessels. We're weak vessels. And that's because the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That's knowing the power of his resurrection. 
And he goes on to describe, we're hard-pressed, but on every side you're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, yet not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because the power is of God. That's why. But he does, in order to do that, he says, to be willing to suffer with Christ. It's because of verse 10, we always carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. Notice the exchange. Not, my, not I, but Christ. Not my life, but Christ. I carry about the dying. I die to self and allow my body to be, be the manifestation of the life of Christ. For we, verse 11, who which live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death worketh in us, but life in you. There it is again. Life in you. It's all for you. And that's the mentality that accompanies knowing the fellowship of his suffering is to be conformed to his death. It's not living for self. It's not prioritizing self. It's not serving God when it's convenient, when everybody's ha happy and the ducks are all in a row. The, the, this, this exchanged life, as described here, is an, un is an unselfish objective. Death in us and life in you. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus that he seeks to develop in each of his children. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul saw an amazing love and an and, and, and irresistible purpose to participate in. The purpose of making a difference in people's lives. And it takes sacrifice. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to happen at the, sometimes at the most inconvenience of times. But we entrust ourselves to the Lord. And as, we're see, as we'll see in our study of 1 Peter, in these passages, in every ca category of suffering, the, the, the answer, the biblical instruction is, is to commit our souls to him in well-doing as to a faithful creator. And he will be faithful to sustain us as we're willing to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, and sometimes our knowledge of him seems so shallow. And yet, Father, you desire to lead us into a deeper relationship. To follow the scriptures here, to, to say in our hearts that I may know him. But help us to recognize that to know him is to know his, his power on one hand, but also to know his sufferings, his service on the other. And Father, thank you that in this venture of growth, that you are with us, that you are the one who teaches us and leads us. And help us to each day and in every situation to entrust our lives to you, to see our circumstances from you and allow you to use us, Father. May we be those that be willing to participate in the work of the gospel, the furthering of the gospel, no matter what it costs. So be our instructor. Take these things we've learned today and impress them upon our hearts and lives. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. If you'll take your songbooks and stand, we'll close with page 659. Jesus, draw me ever near. <laughs>